0: Well, this afternoon, we're going to focus on the church in our study of eschatology. So, the church. Let me give you a little introduction, first of all, to eschatology relating to the church. Now, when we think we, as members of the body of Christ, think of the church, we almost interpret future things from our perspective, which is normal and natural, but I tried to stress that the church isn't the center of all of God's dealings. In fact, it's almost like a parenthesis. It's not a surprise or it's not plan B from God's perspective. But in terms of what's revealed in the Old Testament, Paul describes the church as a mystery. And and that means that the church is not described in the Old Testament. It is a mystery in that now we have new revelation that is not revealed anywhere else, and it pertains to a particular entity that's going to serve a particular purpose in in a particular time frame that fits within Jewish history and the Jewish time frame. But it is important because it is the age in which we are living in, and God definitely has a place for the church not an afterthought. I think in the mind of God, I think it was a plan all along. It fits within the broader plan of God, and it serves a huge purpose, but we need to keep it in its proper perspective. So it touches us today directly, unlike some of the things that we talked about in terms of Israel. But in terms of God's plan, it is a plan alongside of that of Israel, but Israel we need to keep as prominent. That's why I say that eschatology is Jewish, and I've tried to stress that, and if you don't remember anything else, that'll be the one thing that'll help you put all of it together. I've given given most of this slide before. We've said the major elements of Jewish eschatology deals with Israel and their failure, And along with the failure comes discipline. And this has worked itself out in history on several occasions. And it's going to work itself out at the end of the age as well. So we've seen some fulfillment of that. And that goes all the way back even before Deuteronomy. I spent a lot of time looking at Deuteronomy. But even the generation before, Leviticus 26 parallels Deuteronomy. And that's to the first generation that left Egypt. And before they're a nation, God lays this eschatology out. And this is, you could say, the rest of world history for the nation of Israel and the world. So their failure and discipline and a major theme, a major area, is tribulation. There's going to be a period of tribulation. It's not until you even get to Daniel that it's specified in terms of the time frame. A seven year period of time and actually there are more passages in scripture that give detailed descriptions of the tribulation period than any other area of eschatology and when we look at that overview of the Olivet discourse you probably even notice we have basically what 20 29 almost 29 verses minus 2 27 verses On this period of time. I think it's talking about that period of time. And the book of Revelation, if you look at the book of Revelation, from chapters, you could even include four and five, even though those are a heavenly scene, but most certainly beginning in chapter six, all the way through the end of chapter 18. That's a description of that period of time. So this is huge. This is important. Period of tribulation. And during that period of time, and also in some periods even prior, like before the New Testament era, we have restoration. And some of the passages are partially fulfilled in the restoration of Ezra and Nehemiah. But the ultimate ones are not fulfilled until that tribulation. And there's some aspects that perhaps began, in fact, I would say began in 1948 when the nation was regathered in the land. So you have restoration. This is Jewish eschatology. Fourthly, the coming of Messiah. And again, we have a fulfillment of the coming of Messiah in the first century. But all of the prophecies were not fulfilled. In fact, some of them pertain almost like a composite without distinction of Two comings, they're together. And I've given you a few of them. We'll look at some more when we talk about the second coming. But Messiah, that's a major theme of Jewish eschatology, the coming of their Messiah. And it looks ahead even from our period of time. And when Messiah comes, what's it going to bring? Kingdom. Kingdom. So there's your five elements of Jewish eschatology. So when we look at any other eschatology, like the eschatology of the church, the church fits into that eschatology. And it fits primarily in the first part only. Well, not only, but predominantly, particularly on earth. It pertains to Israel. It's part of Israel's failure and discipline. We are still in a period of Jewish discipline, you might say. And in that time frame, God is devoting a part of this bigger plan to a particular entity we call the church. Make sense? And you'll notice that everything in the church is in relationship to either the tribulation, or it's in relationship to Israel's restoration, and obviously we are related to Messiah, but it's Israel's Messiah, and we have a place in Israel's kingdom. So, We could view today, in fact, the entire church age, as actually preparation for the fulfillment of Jewish eschatology. God is using 2,000 years to prepare the nation of Israel for fulfilling all of the covenants and the promises that we've already looked at in the Old Testament. Much of what happens during the church age is not fulfillment, at least that's a futurist view and a view that I, I believe in. Not all futurists, however, they kind of compromise some of that, and we'll talk about that later. Okay, So I see the church age as God preparing, beginning in the first century, for him to start the clock again, the Jewish chronology, the Jewish clock, in order to complete Jewish history. Now, this is not only the history of Israel, so just a quick review, and then we'll put the church in that perspective. This is the history of Israel, but in reality, world history is Jewish as well. So you could not only say eschatology is Jewish, but we should properly say world history is Jewish as well. And I've always emphasized that this is real world history, the events that the Bible describes. So a long period of time from creation to the early days or the time of the Exodus, we have the origin of Israel. That's Genesis. Then we have the emergence of Israel. That's where God is bringing them together as people, beginning with the Exodus. He gives them their constitution on Mount Sinai And in Joshua, he gives them the land. And after Joshua and during the period of Judges, he's beginning to establish them as a nation. So that's their emergence. A lot of the Old Testament history. And ultimately, God intended a kingdom that man would rule on earth. He would rule the earth. And it's during the kingdom that there's a little bit of a fulfillment of what God intends for the nation of Israel to be the rulers of the earth. But because man is sinful, man contaminates and eventually degenerates what God has has done, the work of grace, and the kingdom collapsed. We looked at that. The kingdom was destroyed. God brings discipline and uh, deals with Israel. And then we have the period where God begins a partial restoration in fulfillment of already some of the prophecies, and that is for the coming of Messiah, a restoration. Now, it's not the total restoration. There's a future restoration in preparation of Messiah where the new covenant and all of the promises are fulfilled, even future from the 21st century. So there's restoration for preparation for Messiah, and then obviously we know Messiah, and then we have a place in that, in that Messiah builds his ecclesia, his church. But it's a period where Israel is dispersed. So we're in the period towards the end of the dispersion, we could say, and where God is regathering. And during this dispersion, during this failure and discipline, this is the place where God is using a new entity. But God is not done with Israel. So I think a huge misinterpretation of Scripture is that that is taken by the replacement theology people or even covenant theology people that prioritize this period of time but omit a Jewish place in what God is doing. And then we have the ultimate restoration during that seven-year period of time culminated with the second coming, that little arrow there. And then God is going to fulfill what he said concerning Israel ruling the world, except with a sinless. King, the Messiah. That's Jewish history. That is world history. And the church fits in in the time frame where Israel is dispersed and where God begins to restore the nation to complete the work that he began with that. And in that, we have this concept of us being grafted in as the people of God, but it's grafted into the Israeli stump or the Jewish stump And we have uh, a part in that as well. And the Bible speaks what I'm kind of going to give you and particularly give you some of the scriptures. The Bible, particularly in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament, we have some references to eternity. And when we speak of eternity, we're talking about a time frame, I think, which is outside of time. And when... The Bible says in the beginning, that's the beginning of time. And there's going to be a conclusion to time. And I think the millennial kingdom, at the end of it, that's the end of time. So time is related to us within uh, the material created realm. I think there's a realm that we can't even conceive of that is outside of time. Outside, and I think the Bible uses the word eternity or that concept of eternity. So that's outside now, the Bible refers to the future portion of eternity more often than it does the past time. But there are a few passages. For example, 1 Corinthians two seven, and we won't look these up because I just want to pick up some of the phrases, so I'll read some of these. But it says, but we speak God's wisdom. This is Paul addressing the Corinthians and talking about this wisdom that is available to mankind through Christ. And he's talking about God's wisdom, he speaks it in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined, and then there's a little phrase, before the ages to our glory. This is an eternal wisdom that God had with the intention of communicating it in time. And that little phrase, before the ages, he's talking about all of the ages of time. So he's preceding Adam and Eve. He's preceding the creation. The wisdom of God is eternal. It's always been there. It's part of who God is. He's a wise God. It's always in his thinking. And he has predestined certain things that he's going to implement into the creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the beginning of time. And we have this plan that we've been looking at. And Paul is saying that even in his generation, some of this wisdom is unfolded that deals with Jesus Christ and he deals with the gospel message and is given to believers that are members of the church. But the, the little phrase there, before the ages, speaks of the eternal state. Now, let's take a look at another very important passage that I think kind of gives us a picture of this big plan, and one of them is in Ephesians 3. In fact, I should put Ephesians there, 3, 9 through 11, where Paul is talking about, first of all, this word to bring to light what is the administration of, you could even substitute this idea, this plan of God, where God is administrating a plan, a big plan. The Greek word is oikonomia, the King James translates that. What is the dispensation, looking at it as a broad administration or economy, you might even say, or a way of dealing with humanity, to bring to light what is the oikonomia of the mystery for which for ages, see the word there, and it's the Greek word aeonias, ages, implying that there are different stages or different parts, different administrations in this big plan. But the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now in this age be made known through the church. So there is a special plan that God has for the church. And one of the things he's doing is unfolding and making more clear this broad plan. But it's not necessarily just for the church. It's a broad plan that involves all of humanity and particularly the nation of Israel. So I want you to notice, and I've highlighted some of the things to notice, there's this oikonomia or this administration that God is involved in or dispensation or groups of dispensations. And it's for the ages over different dispensations or different periods has been hidden But now God is working a new work. Then the text goes on. Made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So it's a divine plan that includes not just earth, but heaven as well. Angelic creatures. There's several little passages in the New Testament that speak of the angels watching. In other words, they're observing. What is this new work? What is God doing? They're familiar with what, because they've seen historically what God did with Israel And they're probably familiar with the promises concerning Israel, but what is God doing now? And that's the emphasis of Paul in this passage in Ephesians. In in fact, in the preceding passage, he has defined for probably the clearest place what the essence of the church is all about. God bringing together Jew and Gentile. Revolutionary in the first century. So he's making that known to the authorities in the heavenly places, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose. There's that plan. There's an eternal plan. Eternity. Aon, which is a, that's the big plan of God, which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, the focus of this plan is Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, Jesus Christ. And he's brought it about in time, in the first century, first coming. There's elements of it that extend beyond that. But this is an important passage in terms of looking at that big plan, and uh, the emphasis here is what he's doing through the church. So he's unfolding elements of this plan that have never been revealed before, the mystery never revealed in the Old Testament, elements of that plan. So we have this eternal plan. You might turn also, there's another passage that I think is very important where it lays out, some of those parts of this plan, Second Peter chapter 3, and let's read that one and I'll have you start to do some of that reading here. What I'm getting at here is there's different aspects or elements to this bigger plan, and what I'm kind of leading you to is we're living only in a portion of that plan, a small portion of that broader plan. We call that the church age. 2 Peter 3, we probably need to get the context by starting in verse 3. Vivian, let's start with you, and we'll go around clockwise. 2 Peter 3, 3.
1: Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. And read 4. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of time.
0: We can expect, in fact, it identifies it in the last days. We'll talk some more about that later. But I think he's talking about probably in the latter days preceding the second coming, that there's going to be people that mock the second coming, which obviously that happens all the time in our culture. Where is the promise of his coming? And they make this statement, ever since the Father's fall, say nothing, everything's just, everything's the same. Scientifically, what can we call that? I use this verse to describe uniformitarianism. Have you ever heard that little phrase, scientifically? In other words, the way nature is now, that's the way it's always been in the past. But you can look at it also as a uniformitarian approach to history as well. And what Peter's going to argue here, I think, not only scientifically, in fact, I use this passage in my creation talk and my... I think this gives us some insight into the created realm itself. So it touches on science, and I use this and make a big point out of it. But it also deals with history in general. And what Peter is going to do, beginning in verse 4, he's going to argue against this uniformitarian approach, either scientifically or historically. Things have not always been the same. And things have not always been the same in how God deals with humanity. And he's going to start with radical events. Hanada, read verse 5. The first radical event is what? Read it.
1: So they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water.
0: Okay. What's he referring to there?
1: Creation. Creation.
0: What he's saying is... Everything began with a radical event. In other words, things have not always been this way. In other words, things have not always been like they were in the first century, in the writing of this time that he's writing, or the assumptions of the people of the first century. There have always been radical events. Now, he doesn't mention the the fall, but I think he alludes to it in the same passage, which I would say is a radical event. But he jumps to another radical event in verse 6. Uh, you want to read that one, Mark? Through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. The world at that time, this is after the fall. This is a fallen world now. But what radical event is he talking about? The flood. So what he's basically saying, things have not always been like they are today. So we are talking about. A radical transformation that's going to take place when Messiah comes, when Jesus returns. And the mockers are saying, well, you know, there's not going to be any radical, you know, nothing radical is going to happen. Everything's always been the same. There's never been any changes. Peter introduces two things here, creation, flood. And not only that, but he's pointing and he's giving evidence that there's going to come a radical transformation. All of nature is going to be affected. And one of the points I make in this passage is the creation, before that, there's nothing. There's just God. There's a fall, a radical effect. All of the creation is affected by the fall. The flood is, the pre-flood universe is different scientifically, materially than it is today or post-flood. We're living in a post-flood environment. The Noahic Covenant established a stable environment for a period of time. There's going to be a future radical transformation at the second coming. All of nature is going to be affected, but all of history as well. Different time frames is the point I'm making here. Different ages. So Peter goes all the way to the beginning. Eternity is interrupted with this creation of the universe event, a radical event. It's disrupted again with a flood. And then verse 7. Jim, do you want to read that one?
1: But the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved, for, kept for the day of judgment, destruction, of the holy man.
0: There's going to be a radical transformation in the future. We call that judgment. And it comes with the second coming, or it, it surrounds the second coming. And you keep reading, and he eventually talks about a new heaven and a new earth. And I think he's talking about everything's different. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, that was a first fruits of what some creatures are going to be like. A resurrected state, a resurrected body. And we anticipate it. And that's the heart of Christianity, by the way. But the thing to notice here is Peter is saying there are different periods of time when radical things have happened. And they've endured for different periods of time. This is where we as dispensationalists get this idea of God dealing with mankind, at least historically, and I would extend it to even materially, where God is dealing with mankind in different ways, in different ages. So we have a time, or not a time, but we have a state outside of time. We call that eternity. And then we have these little phrases, one of them, Romans 12, 12.14, where he refers to a time frame between Adam until Moses. And by the way, what I've added to the slides is I've just put the Jewish history below it so we can see in reference to the timeline, these references that Paul is referring to. And what he's talking about here is that sin reigned in that time. In other words, there's sin and death before the law is the essence of what he's saying. So... The constant is man's fallenness, man's sinfulness. That began with Adam, and it continued. So the law didn't, you know, that's not the beginning of accountability in terms of sin. It existed before, but God intervened in the time of Moses and implemented a new era, a new time frame. Now, that's not clearly necessarily brought out, but if you put all the scriptures together, including the Romans 5, You can see that there's an era in there that he talks about, or an age. And by the way, all of these passages are also the basis for a dispensational view of history, a dispensational interpretation of Scripture as well. There's also in and the passage I was referring to there is John 1.17, For the law was given through Moses. There's the law. A period of law was begun. And then he for goes on.
2: Adam, Adam to Moses or Moses to Christ.
0: Yeah, for the law was given through Moses. And now he's going to interrupt that with, in, this is John one seventeen. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So he's speaking of a period of time between Moses and Christ. And that's pre- dominated by law. That's an era where law is dominant. What I'm kind of getting at here is these different ages that are alluded to or clearly spelled out in Scripture. Mark
2: from Moses to Christ, the dominant feature was law. The law. From Adam to Moses, the dominant was what?
0: Well, not so much a dominant feature, but sin reigned is what he says. Man's fallenness. Uh, it doesn't. It's not introduced with with law. It's made more specific in terms of what is violation of law, what is specifically sin. okay but I'm just developing these different passages. So we have these little phrases in the text from Adam to Moses, and we could summarize from Moses to Christ a period of law that led to a period of grace. And Jesus himself refers to the times of the Gentiles. That's that luke twenty one twenty four passage where Jesus is alluding to a period of time that has certain characteristics of it. The major characteristic of the times of the Gentiles is a period of time when Gentile governments are going to reign over the Jewish nation. The nation of Israel is going to be dominated by Gentiles. That's called the times of the Gentiles. We're living in the times of the Gentiles still. And I think Paul is alluding to the end of that in that Romans 11 passage that we looked at. Until the the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, certain things are taking place. And when we speak of world history, like from a secular perspective or the world history of UNM or any college, any secular institution, all high schools, etc., it primarily deals with the history of the times of the Gentiles, where Gentile powers are dominant. And it minimizes most of the history before, calls that prehistory, mm-hmm. and totally and somewhat, know, right? yeah, <laughs> an evolutionary approach, mm-hmm. and somewhat uh, minimizes Israel and the whole thing when Israel is basically world history. So
2: we wouldn't we wouldn't do we wouldn't start the time of the Gentiles with the Assyrian captivity because it wasn't in no.
0: Jerusalem. Correct. It's when they started dominating Jerusalem. Yeah, and the northern kingdoms were apostates. Yeah, yeah. So we started with basically Judah and Benjamin. If you want a date for it, I believe the destruction of Israel, either 586 or you could even precede that with 605 when the first wave of Jewish captives were sent into exile. That would kick off the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. And that time of the Gentiles will continue until when? Until Messiah liberates the, the nation. Now, it was hoped in the first century, this was the hope of the first century Jewish people. They hoped that when Messiah would come, he would liberate them from that oppressor, which was the Roman Empire. When he failed and he died on the cross, the nation, well, before that, the nation had already abandoned him and rejected him and eventually led to the crucifixion because he was not releasing them from Gentile powers. That won't happen until he returns. Mark, you were going to... I was
2: going to say more definitive than that. The way Fructumbah describes it is from the rejection of Israel to the acceptance of Israel. The acceptance of Israel, when Israel, quote-unquote, the nation is saved. means all the nation, mm-hmm. leaders on down, accepting
0: at the very end. Is that how he identifies the times of the Gentiles? Right. So what does he give the beginning point? Acceptance. So when does he start the times of the Gentiles? Uh... First century. Technically,
2: it was right at the, the rejection by the Pharisees of miracle healing mute. Okay. That miracle was obviously a messianic miracle, the Messiah could mm-hmm. perform, and so that was when the Pharisees said it was seen.
0: Okay, good. so he has slightly different view. He he doesn't begin the times of Gentiles first century. I see the times of the Gentiles as where Gentiles dominate, and they dominate all the way through. Okay,
2: and I might be wrong that part. But yeah, yeah you right, might check yeah, that out. I might be wrong.
0: Yeah, yeah. I would put it, if you want right. a specific date, 605, if you want a specific date, all the way, and I can't give you a date for the second coming. No. <laughs> so we have a period from Adam to Moses, from Moses to Christ, the times of the Gentiles, and there's also references to Jewish times. You might just jot down 1 Thessalonians 5, one. But I think this is what Jesus is alluding to when the disciples in Acts 1 6, they ask Jesus, Are you going to restore the kingdom now? They're looking at a new era, a new age called the kingdom. Okay? And what does Jesus answer in verse 7? Not for you to know. It is not for you to know the times and epochs. It's not for you to know these ages, or at least this future age, at least now. I have a plan for you now, and he's going to spell that out in verse 8. But the point I'm making here is here's a reference to times and epochs. I think those are Jewish times and epochs, and specifically the kingdom. This is a different time frame, a different dispensation that God is going to work. They're anticipating it. Jim.
1: Well, I've been reading Andy's book, of course, I'm almost done with it. You know, he uh, points out that uh, the uh, in Acts, there's a, I think there's eight occasions where the kingdom of God is referred to, mm-hmm. and that the, uh, the progressive dispensationalists uh, use those passages as evidence that the Davidic kingdom started in heaven instead of on earth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, problem- but it, when you go back and look at those passages, which I did... Uh, They all, all but one, I think, seem to, the focus seems to be on the, on the advent of the Spirit to different people, group, circumstances. Right. And the focus is not on the kingdom at all.
0: It's on a new administration that precedes the kingdom, is what I would say. Exactly. Right. So, I'm just giving you these little phrases in scripture and I'm summarizing them, in this case, Jewish times. There's several references to past time frames or past eras or past ages. One passage, Colossians one twenty six. Paul is saying this, that is the mystery, he's talking about, in that context, he's talking about the church, which has been hidden, it's not revealed in the Old Testament, which has been hidden from the Past ages. And it's plural. So he's referring to Old Testament ages that might include more than one. Past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to the saints. And the now is during this period of administration or during this church age. So there's these past references. There's several references to present Era, And it's looked at as a era, or we could use the word dispensation. Titus 2.12, where it talks about instructing us to deny ungodliness and world desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, this present era, this present dispensation. And we would call it a dispensation described by the word church. Another passage, Ephesians 1.10, with a view to an administration, with a view to an oikonomia, or a dispensation, suitable to the fullness of times. That's a reference to the present age. A present time is the fullness of time where God is going to bring the process of fulfillment dealing with the nation of Israel. Preparation. There are several references to the present evil age. The age is characterized by evil. One passage, Galatians 1 4, referring to Jesus who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us out of this present evil age. Church age is an evil age. Not that others weren't evil as well, but particular attention to. The description of this evil age. And you'll see that little phrase several times. Romans 12, 2. 1 Corinthians 2, six, Second Corinthians 4, 4. This present evil age. What the
1: reference before uh, Second Corinthians 4?
0: First Corinthians 2, 6. And Romans 12, 2. Thank you. So here's another, on a timeline, another age that we could describe as the present age, which... In the context is the church age, and that will extend until the church is removed. We'll talk about that in church eschatology. And there's references to a future age, and that would be future after the church is taken out, where we revert back to Jewish eschatology. Ephesians 2.7 refers to a future era or age. In order in the ages, even, there's a plural even, in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In the age to come, a future age. Hebrews 6.5, And have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. That would include perhaps at least the millennial age, which is different and it could even refer to the new heaven and new earth. And you have at least two future ages. So, there's a future age, at least the kingdom, if it does not also include eternity or the new heavens and the new earth. And on our timeline, that completes world history, a program of the ages. So we have eternity on one end and eternity on the other, and that's time, that's history. I got a question for you. You're talking
2: about time and outside of time. Is heaven considered outside of the realm? Yes. So when we're raptured up, you know, from that time to the covenant sign and that that seven year period, we're not actually going to be going through the minutes and the seconds of that.
0: Exactly. That's weird. Yes.
2: We're we're actually like above it, watching it almost like a parade type. Yes. We see the beginning and the end.
0: Yeah. But I think the unique thing about resurrection. And I get this mainly from Christ's resurrection. I think his resurrection gives us a pattern of something what it may be like for us. In that we will, because we, there are many passages that speak of us having a part in the kingdom, we will have a part in the kingdom analogous to what Jesus had a part with the disciples when he appeared to them. Does that make sense? Now he ascended, but he'll return, and he will have a visit. They'll probably, you'll probably be able to see the nail prints. When he sits on his throne in the millennial kingdom and you'll have a physical presence of him in some way. He ate a meal. He, you know, walked with disciples. He looked human. I think we will manifest some of those characteristics in the millennial kingdom. We can come and go. We can appear. We can disappear. Maybe we will have a ministry to people and at the same time we'll be outside of time. So I don't know how that, I don't know how that all fits together. Haven't experienced it yet, but if you put all of the passages yes. together, so I think when we die, we go outside of time. So in a sense, we're not ex- we're not waiting somewhere for the rapture to occur and yes. the resurrection. We go immediately. We're transferred over there. We're outside of time. That makes sense. I mean, that's the best I can put it together. Mm-hmm point I'm making, here's a program of the ages described in different phrases and covers all of world history, essentially, which leads to distinct ages that we try to identify where God is dealing with mankind in different ways. Now, covenant theology denies some of these essential elements that I've tried to kind of lay a foundation for. In trying to describe us dispensationalists in very negative terms. And some of the things, some of the ways they describe us is that we break up the Bible into all these different pieces and make it disjointed and that sort of thing. And what we're trying to do is just to acknowledge that God is, seems to be dealing with mankind in different ways over different periods of time. They also accuse us of introducing different gospels or different ways of approaching God, and all of these are just straw men that they're not really valid. These passages kind of lay a foundation for this idea that there seem to be these distinct ages. And even the covenant theologians will acknowledge that there's a difference. They acknowledge at least two dispensations. They equate them in many ways, but they acknowledge at least two. Old Testament, New Testament era. They do see some distinctions there. So they're at least a two-part dispensational system, even though they deny dispensationalism. And in fact, they also would include even a third difference. Old Testament, New Testament, and what? Future or eternity or some form of a kingdom. So they at least acknowledge an Old Testament period. So they're at least a two-part, and they would acknowledge a church age. Now they try to mix the two up. But they would acknowledge most covenant theologians would not say that we're under law. They would accept that concept. But they are at least three-part as well in that they look at the eternal state as another age or dispensation, we might say. I would press them, well, you're talking about a third dispensation here. Mm -hmm. So why not acknowledge that there's a difference between Adam and Eve before sin and after sin, and God deals with them differently. And what I'm just laying out here are the basic descriptions of the dispensations that we hold to, leading up to a particular time frame we call the church. And there seems to be a period of time between the fall and the flood. that's that second Peter 3 passage that I mentioned that would make distinctions be, you know before sin and after sin, the original creation and after sin up to the flood. And most dispensationalists would see a period of time where things are different. And I emphasize even the material things are different between the fall and the flood. Different from before and different from after. And there seems to be a period between the flood and Babel where God is dealing differently. Distinctions. Now, these are all in Genesis so far. Fourthly, we see an Israel and an Old Testament period where God is dealing through... First, Abraham that will eventuate into a nation that will extend throughout the Old Testament period. There's different names that they give to these different distinctions. I'm describing them more in terms of time. And then what do we have? The present era we call church age, which is very distinct, very different. And then what do we have? (laughs) Jewish eschatology. (laughs) Tribulation and kingdom, and usually that's grouped together. Tribulation is more a transition into an era of kingdom. The kingdom is radically different than any era before. And then dispensationalists usually talk about a period after the kingdom, which is even more different than the kingdom, and we make a distinction between the eternal state and the kingdom, and there you have seven dispensations, if you will.
1: It seems like you separate tribulation from kingdom because you don't have you the, could you know, yeah you don't have the indwelling spirit
0: yeah and it's it's more of a transitional time and and by the way you in some of these you do have some transitional time as well you have a transitional time I mean where do you put uh, the time of Christ
2: between the Old Testament and the Church kind of
0: between true. yeah so you have little transitions in mm-hmm. in several of these. So, that leads us, and this is the sharp distinction, this is the main distinction we make between Israel and the church, and I think this is very important in understanding eschatology to maintain these distinctions. Their nature is different, radically different. The covenant theologian tries to smooth over these distinctions, and they speak in terms of the church as the new Israel, or Israel as the Old Testament church. And they try to unify one people of God. The church in the Old Testament is Israel. The the Israel in the New Testament is the church. And they try to equate it and smooth them over. But I think you have to kind of brush over a lot of these distinctions. Israel is a nation. The church is not. That's the essential nature of Israel. And when we speak of Israel as a nation, they have a common people, common bloodline. Does the church have a common people and a common bloodline? No. Israel has a constitution, the Mosaic Covenant. We've gone over all of this. The covenant regulates society, its government, its leaders, its international relations, its religion, its individuals, its future. Everything's stipulated by that covenant. Does the church have such a document, such a covenant? No unless you want to view the whole Bible, but it's not a covenant. So they have a common people, they have a common constitution, and you know what? That land. All right. <laughs> I was going to ask, where have you guys been in the last seven weeks, six weeks? Common land, possessed with boundaries that are specified by covenant. Now, they've not been able to occupy the full extent. What is the land of the church? You're Vatican right. City? <laughs> Hmm? yeah it has no boundaries it's, yeah. it's the one <laughs> place where we believe in globalism that's right and no, ba- and no boundaries yeah. <laughs> but it's not a nation
1: a worldwide organ.
0: it has a common people but it's not limited by bloodline in other words humanity if we're to reach all peoples all mm-hmm. nations and it's not bound by any boundaries in fact it's even heavenly so Israel is distinct. It's a nation, and God has a distinct program that includes all of the ages. Israel extends from creation all the way to great white throne judgment. That's why world history is Jewish. And these prior ages before Abraham, they're the origin of Israel. In other words, this is where it's just background where Israel came from. What's the head of Israel? Or who is the head? Well, God, yeah, that's good. That's a good answer. We trace it to Abraham, but uh, I wouldn't disagree with you. And their nationality is one, one nationality, one bloodline. Now, you can become a proselyte, but you become Jewish, you become a Jew, you identify with them. And in terms of Christ, he's their Messiah, and in terms of the Holy Spirit, what would we say in terms of Israel and the Holy Spirit? Come up with one word. Starts with an S. Sounds like, no, selective.
2: Well, never guessed that selective.
0: <laughs> the Holy Spirit is selective. It comes upon kings, and, and even not all kings. It comes upon prophets, comes upon judges. In the mm-hmm. building of the tabernacle, it came upon work, so certain that's workers. So, so it's, it's to
1: only right. people. All right.
0: And the government is governed by covenants. In other words, covenants, the legal mm-hmm. documents that regulate their government. In fact, everything about them. <coughs> In terms of time, I use the word temporal there, that there is a distinct calendar for Israel. And their enemies are what? Primarily earthly enemies. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, the Edomites, the Moabites, different in different eras, different peoples oppressed them in the first century the Roman Empire. At the end of the age a revived Roman Empire. They're earthly enemies. And they did physical battle. The church is not a nation, but instead what? It's not a nation. It's an, it's an organism.
1: It's, an organism. I was just saying.
0: Ah, it's spiritual. <laughs> it's an organism that functions as a living organism. And the program is for what? There's a particular program in a particular age called the church age. Now it'll extend, but not on earth. On earth, it. It ends at the end of the church age, a program. Whereas all of the ages, Israel is a part of all of the ages, including those that precede Abraham. Lots of distinctions. And the head Christ, Christ very good. Nationality? All. all very good. Vivian could have made this chart. <laughs> Sorry. And if Christ is Israel's Messiah in terms of the church,
1: Still up in this- Messiah, no, so you could like say that. Lord, Savior. Mm-hmm. Savior. Very good.
0: Savior. And the Holy Spirit instead of selective. Universal. <laughs> universal. would be a good word. Or all. All members of the church have the Holy Spirit. Or a universal outpouring upon all members of the church. And is there a covenant that governs us?
2: I don't New know. Testament.
0: Mm, how about just the ascended Christ himself? From the right hand of the Father, he He governs. We submit to him. And is there a calendar for church? We'd have to say none, no calendar. In fact, it almost doesn't show up on uh, the historical Jewish calendar, and some call it even a parenthesis. And the enemies are what? They're not flesh and blood, but what? heavenly or, or spiritual. And and this is not all. I mean, I've got a list of several more on there as well. Uh, in terms of God's revelation, you would have to say that all of the Bible is Jewish in terms of revelation. And only about one-fifth of the Bible pertains to the church itself. It's not mentioned at all in the Old Testament. So you, you could add to this list several other distinctions between Israel and the church.
1: What did you mean when you said, world category that you said
0: it was present? Well, what I meant by that, Israel didn't exist, but in terms of the history before Abraham, we view it as the origin of Israel. In other words, this is the roots. God is moving through history to bring about a man named Abraham that will eventuate into a nation. So you could even start Genesis 3.15 as the seed of the woman. And then... uh, you know, the genealogy traces traced all the way to Adam, so basically all of our world history pertains, every age pertains to it. Does that make sense, in one way or another? And then eventually, in Abraham, we have the first manifestation of God working as the head of, or the father of the nation of Israel that eventuates into the nation. And even during the church age, you'd have to say, like Paul refers to Israel right now, having a partial hardening until all of the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and then God's going to restore them.
1: Can you remind us of how the calendar got changed?
0: Oh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> the Gregorian calendar, you mean? Or the Jewish? Yeah,
1: well, changed you to, you know, BC. Oh, recently, you mean? Yeah, ours 2000s. Oh. Well, how did it get changed? It doesn't seem like it would occur to the world that maybe Jesus was a special <laughs> <laughs>
0: 100%. Up until recent time, where people try to suppress that, yeah. I mean, they've yeah. gone
1: away with BC physically. Yeah. What was that Vivian? They've gone away from using BC oh, even yeah. to AE, or I don't know. Before
0: Common after. Yeah, that. Common Era CE. CE CE is real common nowadays in historical works. It's just a suppression of recognizing. Um, up until the last couple of hundred years, we recognized that something significant happened with the coming of Christ, and obviously we know why. But the world has always minimized that.
2: I, mean, I guess I thought your question, Jim, had to do with why did we all of a sudden start saying that it was, you know, Jesus Christ was born in one B, one A.D. My, yeah. I mean, the answer I would have given it had something to do, probably, excuse me, with the Roman Church.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the pope was so powerful.
2: The, the pope was everything, uh, secular and religious, right. and therefore it was a Gregorian.
0: He probably the Pope Gregory so that the world took it It's called the Gregorian calendar. The, Is that what you're referring so were,
1: to? Yeah, I was looking. I was wondering, historically, <laughs> out of the, I mean, it was the calendar started over. Yeah. You know, and, and
0: I, yeah, I,
1: I really
0: I'm, really I'm not, not certain on that. that, but it's probably with Pope Gregory because we refer to the Gregorian calendar. <laughs>
2: Yeah, we had too much Our power. Pope, what did I say? We well, used Pope Gregory. I had no. I hadn't assigned Gregory to anything.
0: Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I don't remember when he was Pope. Look it up. Barbie. Mm-hmm.
1: So I pulled up something over here regarding the uh, Gregorian calendar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't talk the calendar. It says the original goal of the Gregorian calendar was to change the date of Easter in 1582 when Pope Gregory the Eighth. Introduces introduced Gregorian, cal- Gregorian calendar. Europe adhered to the um, Julian calendar first implemented by Julius Caesar in 46 B.C. Does make any sense to answer your question?
0: But he instituted in what 16?
1: That was um, 1582.
0: 1582. Yeah, yeah so Julius right.
1: Caesar was the one that was implemented by him. The Julian calendar was in 46 B.C.
0: Okay, real quickly, the present age. What's God's purpose in this present age? I think that Ephesian passage spells out some of it. And it's an age dominated by grace. We're not under law. We're not under even covenant, you might even say. We answer directly to God and it's purely by grace. All of the promises, all of the covenants are for Israel and we enter without covenants, without promise, not because of anything in us in terms of a church, but it's by grace, and we would also say its character, in terms of time, it's a mystery in the Old Testament, and several of those passages make that clear. Particularly the Ephesians three passage, five through nine, Paul expands on the mystery. Church is a mystery. And it's a program within the Jewish time frame within the program that God has for for Israel, and it has a course that I think Scripture outlines. And this is where we start to talk about eschatology. What is that that progress or that course? And It's not as specific and it's not as clearly defined as that that God has laid out for Israel, but there are certain things. Some key passages would be that Matthew 13 passage that I referred to before, where after Jesus is rejected as Messiah, the kingdom is rejected. You reject the king, you reject the kingdom. So Jesus is going to lay out, I think, in Matthew 13, something of a course of an inter-advent period of time. Mark, did you have a... Uh,
2: so that passage in Matthew 13 is going to a course?
0: Yeah. In other words, what are some of the things to anticipate over this period of time? In other words, how does it unfold? So each of the parables give us a little picture of how this age is going to be characterized or how things are going to turn out. And just an example, I won't go over all of them, but the parable of the four soils, the sower and the four soils, it's going to say that it tells us that there's going to be a variety of responses to this Messiah, variety of responses to Jesus. Some will receive that word and quickly abandon it. Uh, some will receive it and there'll be great fruitfulness as a result. So we can anticipate that during the church age. So he's now he's not describing it because he's talking to a Jewish audience as a church age. He's describing it more as a interim period of time interrupting kind of a, a Jewish time frame. It parallels the church age. The wheat and the tares, you can expect there's going to be those that receive the message and those that reject it and the ones that reject it are going to try to choke out those that have received it. And there's going to be a separation at the end. So these parables are designed to kind of give us a feel for what to expect during this period of time, the course of events. The mustard seed, it's going to begin very, very tiny, like a mustard seed. And then it's going to grow into this grotesque tree where even the birds make their nests in it. So you can expect a great expansion and it's going to become unwieldy towards its full growth. Does that make sense? That's the course. That's the way it's going to take. The treasure probably refers to Israel. Israel will be called from the earth at great cost and even death. Then there's going to be a dragnet at the end, a judgment at the end, like a dragnet where there's going to be a separation of those that are true and those that are not so let's take a break and then we'll come back and we'll look at eschatology relating to the church that's your introduction and we'll begin with eschatology before the tribulation and notice it's in relationship to jewish eschatology